0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Jean Hines, and she is the incoming CEO of Wellington Management, a nearly 100-year-old firm which manages over a trillion dollars in assets. Jean is a fascinating investor. She's got a great history, both as she Started her early jobs at Wellington, eventually taking over the Vanguard Healthcare Fund, the largest healthcare fund in the country. As a managing partner at Wellington and soon to be CEO, she simply has a unique perspective as to what's going on in the world of asset management. That includes everything from governance issues, who's becoming CEOs, who's rising up through the ranks across the entire industry what the impact of sustainability is going to be on the entire asset management. We talk about private equity, we talk about passive versus active. Pretty much, we covered everything there was to discuss about investing these days. And really, there aren't many people who have as unique a perch to look out on the world of finance and and have an informed uh, opinion. I thought this was a fascinating conversation and I think you will too. So with no further ado, my interview of Wellington Management's, Gene Hines. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz
1: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: My extra special guest this week is Gene Hines. She is the incoming CEO of Wellington Asset Management. The firm manages over a trillion dollars in client assets. She began as an administrative assistant at Wellington uh, and currently also manages the $51 billion Vanguard Healthcare Fund, the country's largest healthcare fund. She takes over as CEO this June. Jean Hines, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Thank you very much, Barry. I'm happy to talk to you today. So I'm kind of intrigued
0: by all sorts of parts of your career. You come out of a college with a degree in economics but your first job is as an administrative assistant seems a little disconnected explain that early career choice
1: well barry if i go back and um, maybe just give you some context you know i'm, sure. I'm from i'm a daughter of um, irish immigrants and so when i went to wellesley college on a scholarship i didn't really know anything about the stock market um, and i remember being in the the crash of 87 that was my first experience in In hearing about what the stock market is, I took a sociology class, and it was about work. And so you had to find an internship at a place of work anywhere around Boston. And I found an internship at a brokerage firm. Um, And that introduced me to the market, which I loved. Um, And I particularly liked the research part of it. I wanted to find out what made stocks go up and down. Um, and so um, in the context of 1991, which was a mini-recession, if you remember, there weren't many jobs, um, I, I went out trying to find that job where I could um, learn about the markets and um, and do research. Um, I was interviewing at um, two different jobs. They were similar jobs. One had a much better title, um, and one, the one at Wellington was an administrative assistant. And you have to imagine back in... 1991. Wellington um, was under 300 employees. We're 2,700 now. So it was a much, much smaller organization, very flat. Um, I didn't know I was going to come in and do um, maybe 50% of my job would be more typical research assistant work. Um, and I remember back to the headhunter telling me that this is a special place. You're never going to regret going to Wellington. There's going to be lots of growth opportunities for you. Um, and that's why I took the job. And I guess I, you know, I, I really did for the first couple of years, maybe 50% of the job was administrative, 50% was really getting to know the markets and learning how to model. And, um, and then um, about 18 months in, I started working with Ed Owens.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Ed Owens. He has been called the best investor you never heard of. He ran the Vanguard Healthcare Fund for quite a long time. What did you learn from working with Ed?
1: Had the privilege of working for Ed for 20 years of my career. Um, when I think back, and, I, and as I said, I started um, working with Ed in early 1993, and that was a period of um, intense um, IPO activity in the bio in the biotechnology sector. He was the re, he was the analyst, the biotech analyst. He was the pharmaceutical analyst, and he also ran the Vanguard Healthcare Fund. And so I just got to go deep with him. Right from the very beginning, uh, you know, when we started working together. If I had to take a step back and say, what are the three things that Ed taught me that will that sort of live with me now and how I both show up as an investor and show up as a leader? I think one just the concept of very deep research. You know, when we're thinking about how we're going to make money for our clients, it's you know, how will the What will the future hold? What will change that is going to um, Really create value for the world. And I think Ed was early in taking that perspective. Um, I think the other one was also following all companies, any market cap, global. I think he was global before um, many, many investors were global. And that really helped us build mosaics. So, for instance, if a company was building, was um, working on a specific mechanism of action for a drug, and there was a small company in um, San Diego working on it. There might be a Japanese company also working on it. And that just helped us, um, flesh out what was happening and, and really trying and really helped us figure out who might be the winners and whether this was really going to be a drug. Was this really going to change medicine? And so I think that sort of deep research, um, Ed instilled in me. Secondly, it's just, um, you know, what value is. So, you know, Ed is a value investor. I consider myself a value investor. And that is very much linked to trying to see what the future is. So what is this company going to be worth if, if this drug is successful or they um, or they gain this market share in this medical device? And it's not necessarily a, a low-P type of investing. It's really what, what companies are worth. And, and then just really tying that to what the stock is at. So our job is not to predict the future of medicine. Our job is to buy stocks, um, not concepts. So where is that? Where is that value versus fundamental? Um, And there has to be room um, in the value of the enterprise for us to make money for our clients. And just finally, flexibility. Ed was a very long-term, low-turnover investor, but he was um, anything but complacent. Um, He was just very flexible to change his mind when something changed or a long-term thesis. I think I'm much better at that in the past. Decade. I think that's something you learn over time. I think it's a very important important in my leadership as well as we think about the firm. That sort of flexibility um, is very key.
0: So I want to flesh out some of the results from that approach to investing in healthcare with some numbers. When Ed retired in 2012, the Vanguard Healthcare Fund that he was managing was the top-performing fund over the previous 25 years. Over three thousand percent for an annualized return of more than fourteen point eight percent, far ahead uh, of its benchmark or the S and P five hundred. So, what sort of pressure was it like (laughs) taking over a fund that had those sort of numbers?
1: Well, I I worked with Ed as I said um, for twenty years on that fund, so I was interc you know very much very closely tied to the research. As well as some of my colleagues on the team. So I guess when I took over this fund, I just felt very comfortable that we had built a team, and we had learned from Ed. We had just the, the privilege of learning from Ed for 20 years. That we would uh, make him proud and and, and carry on um, this, you know, carry on the great results over over the long term that he has created. Um, I, I would say a couple of things as well. Um, you know, he, as I said, he he oh, for over 25 years, he really brought that very science-based Long term best. You know, healthcare is a growth industry. I think it will continue to be a growth industry going forward. And so that is, you know, really bringing that lens to, um, to the fund. Um, he was also very much a contrarian and, and, again, this value investor. And, you know, when you think back to big, um, big moves in the index, you know, he made, had made a big move in, in um, 99 and 2000 to, towards healthcare services and medical technology which had been very much out of favor for many years. Um, and that was 20, 20, 25% of the index back in 99 and 2000. Now it's closer to 50%. So that shift to looking broader than just the pharmaceutical companies also you know, served us well during that period.
0: Hmm. Really interesting. And in 2014, you became one of Wellington's three managing partners. What has that experience been like, knowing that, you're the key uh, troika that's responsible for directing uh, over a trillion dollars.
1: So, so one of Wellington's core edges is our private partnership structure. And that structure has been in place now for almost 42 years. It's It's um, gone global. It's, it's scaled up to a trillion dollars. Um, and I would say, you know, that the... the, 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 the the concepts of the private partnership structure have been in place now for 40 years, 40 plus years. Um, The three managing partners are responsible for the governance of the partnership. And I guess now after, in my my seventh year of being a managing partner, I just really appreciate, you know, one, the brilliance of our partnership structure. um, The fact that, um, you know, the partners, those, the partners and the employees need to trust us to do our homework and leave our biases um, you know, leave our biases behind. Um, so, again, when I think about my last seven years, I've just learned so much about the business. The managing partner role, it's about people becoming um, partners and becoming managing directors, and it's about sharing the economics of the firm. And so, again, those two things about being very fair, um, knowing the business so you can make the right decisions are things that have, um, that have helped me um, be one of, you know, Help me um, be one of those managing partners that our, our partners trust.
0: Quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about Wellington. I know they have a big birthday coming up, soon to be 100 years old. Having that sort of history, what does that mean to the firm?
1: So our 100-year our anniversary is still a few years off. Um, we trace our roots back to 1928 when Walter Morgan founded the first balanced mutual fund, which is now the Wellington Fund, that is sponsored by Vanguard. Our our modern history of the firm is almost 42 years old when we formed our private partnership and and took the company from being a public company to being a private partnership um, back in 1979.
0: And the firm currently is running over a trillion dollars in client assets. Tell us about some of your clients. I know that pensions and endowments and foundations, as well as other global wealth managers are some of the clients uh, of Wellington?
1: So what we, we do one thing um, at Wellington, and that's manage money for our clients. Um, we have a large sub-advisory business in the U.S. and, and around the world. We have a, a very large institutional business, and that's from governments around the world to pension funds to um, endowments and foundations. We, As you mentioned, we have a growing private wealth business for private banks. Um, again, our singular focus is on providing investment content, investment products, and I think that singular focus really helps us deliver investment excellence over time for our for our clients around the world.
0: So, one of your largest clients is Vanguard. That's a long-standing relationship. Obviously, uh, Jack Bogle came out of Wellington to uh, launch Vanguard. Tell us about the relationship between Wellington Management and the Vanguard Group.
1: So, Barry, as you said, said, um, Vanguard and Wellington had um, very similar um, roots back in 1928 when Walter Morgan founded the company. And we went different paths in the 1970s with Wellington focused on investment management and investment content and Vanguard focusing on the mutual fund distribution business. Um, I would say we have a very, very strong partnership. They are our our largest clients. Um, and I just have enormous respect for how well they've done as a business. Um, and so, our, you know, our goal with Vanguard is to to really um, make sure that we're delivering investment excellence over over the long term. And I would say one of the things that I really appreciate appreciate about Vanguard is they really have a very long term horizon, and they are evaluating us on five years and ten years. And I think that 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 sort of partnership has served us well over time.
0: Huh. Interesting. You mentioned earlier that Wellington is a partnership, not publicly traded. I have to imagine that over time there were offers to either go public or to be sold. Why uh, stay private? What's the advantage of that?
1: So one, one of the most important advantages of staying private is that we can be very long-term, long-term in, in our investment horizons, long-term in how we evaluate our talent. Um, and that, I, that really does align with the long term objectives of our clients. So, what are, our, what are, what are we trying to do? We, we are trying to deliver investment results, investment outcomes for our clients, and ultimately their end beneficiaries, which, which, which could be retail individual investors um, around the world. It could be pensioners. Um, and, and, and they have very, their, their time horizons are extremely long term. And so, again, I think our private partnership serves us quite well, and it might be the optimal structure um, to run an, an investment um, asset management business. And I would say the other thing is that this is not a capital-heavy business. So we you know, we don't rely on um, the financial markets or, or banks for, to run our business. And so, again, there was never any necessity. And then maybe one final thing is that we have grown organically. Because I started in 1991, we were approximately $60 billion, and as you said, we're over a trillion dollars now. Um, that's all been through organic growth, adding talent um, along the way to grow, to globalize or grow our fixed income business. And again, we haven't needed, we, we now have it at, at our size, we have the global scale to invest in our business um, without relying on the market.
0: So tell us a little bit about the firm's morning meeting. It's been described as a quote, signature event. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So we started, the morning meeting has been going on since 1958. Um, it is something that has started in, um, in our Boston office, but now also happens. We have a Eurasia morning meeting that happens in our London, a Eurasia meeting that happens in our London, and that connects to our Asia offices. It's really a place to get together and um, debate what's happening in the markets, whether that's um, individual stocks or individual credits or individual or what's happening on a macro level. Um, it, it really does bring the firm together in terms of um, a focus on, on on how, you know, the, the news of the day. Sometimes those meetings are very um, topical and sometimes they are forward-looking and we try to share um, unfinished ideas. I think most importantly, Barry, if I could leave you with one thing about our firm, is that we have a very – Um, collaborative culture. And what that means is that there's no chief investment officer. Um, Each individual um, portfolio manager, we have about 50 plus boutiques, um, can go back and and practice their own philosophy and process. But we have this open collaborative platform. The morning meeting is, is critical part of that. And what you want is debate and challenge on any topic. And I think over the I think the morning meeting has allowed that that forum where um, portfolio managers and analysts can can have debates and have different views and different perspectives. Um, I think that has really helped our collaborative platform.
0: And you mentioned um, attracting talent. what has it been like this year to attract or develop and retain talent uh, given the challenges of the pandemic and having to work remotely, not necessarily being able to interview people face-to-face. What's it been like this past year?
1: We have um, attracted, so again, as you said, it's surprising how, you know, we're, we're almost a year into really having to work from home, and and we've been able to run the firm um, virtually, and that includes attracting talent from all over the globe. So we have onboarded well over 100 people uh, in, in 2020 and, and even more starting in 21. And so that has been seamless. But, again, the most important thing is how do you integrate them and how do you integrate them um, into your teams? We've had two new team members on the healthcare team, so I know firsthand we're trying to integrate them into our processes and into our team culture. Um, and, again, I think it takes work. It takes, it takes work to make sure that you're connecting and you're getting to know them. And that you're spending a lot of time with them. Um, I, I think the apprenticeship model is one of the things that we will, as we think about the future of work, that will be very important to um, having in person. Both the combination of both in person and potentially more flexibility in the future. But again, we've 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 done we've we've tried a lot of different things to make sure we are both integrating new talent as well as keeping teams together during this pandemic and. Technology has really helped, and it's really a lot of every day making sure people are connecting, either through our morning meeting, as we talked about, or through more team meetings or through one-on-one conversations.
0: So you're founded in Philadelphia, headquartered in Boston. How has the pandemic changed how you recruit and retain people? Does it open up more opportunities
1: I do think what we've learned from, the, from working from home is that, you know, one, the technology works, so we can um, work more virtually, um, and, and we, can, um, we, can, we can be more flexible in terms of um, how we use technology to interact. So I would suspect, first of all, we'll, we'll, there will be more flexibility in the workforce, and that does allow us to think about other locations where we can attract talent. So other other parts of um, other parts of the U.S. where we don't have um, we don't have um, offices, that's something we're looking at. No decisions have been made, but that's something that I would suspect we'll look at over time, um, as well as other parts of the world where we don't have offices. Like how how do we how do we take a fresh look? We have a group of our leaders now studying. We have a business challenge studying the future of work. Um, I think in the next couple of months we'll we'll see what's there. And they've done such extensive work in terms of surveying other companies and surveying our employees. And I think they'll come with recommendations about you know, how, how we'll work in the future. And I, and I assume we'll have more flexibility and that will allow us to think more broadly about where our employees are located.
0: So what's going on, Gene, in the healthcare industry today? What insights do we have on the vaccine and innovation? This is, has really been a, a hell of a year for healthcare.
1: Yes, Barry. I think uh, when you think about healthcare, and I did mention earlier that healthcare is a growth industry. And what I mean by that is that when you think about demand with, with the population aging, as well as in many, uh, many emerging markets such as China, more people entering the middle class, that just increases healthcare demand. So healthcare demand is increasing at a brisk rate. And, and then we have payers around the world you know, try to figure out how to control that natural growth of healthcare. So that's what's on the demand side. I think on the on the supply side, we are in, and I lo- really like to say, we are in a revolutionary period of biology. And so when you when you talk about the biopharma side, uh, biopharmaceutical side of healthcare, um, this is the most exciting period in my um, 25 plus years of following the industry. And I think. In 2020, that technology, the power of that technology, really came through when you think about how fast um, the vaccines and uh, and the antibodies and you know how fast they were able to be developed during this pandemic.
0: So last year, mRNA was the new tech. It really showed its stuff in developing the COVID vaccine. What are some of the next great healthcare technologies? When when are the nanobots gonna eat? the cholesterol that's built up in uh, people's uh, vascular systems, or is it something else entirely?
1: Yeah, I think if we take a step back and think about the the history of biopharmaceuticals, you had small molecule drugs. Those are small drugs like, you know, Advil or aspirin. And then in the 1990s, you had the discovery that you could deliver proteins. And in the late 1990s, you had the discovery that you could— Deliver monoclonal antibodies, which went after much larger receptors um, in the body. That just opened up biology. Um, so again, when you think about the past 20 years, it's, it's been the growth in the industry and the gro- and really being able to treat many different diseases has been about using these biologics um, to treat diseases. I think we're in a comp- we're in a completely new era now in 2020. When you think about the ability to target DNA in a, in a completely um, new way. So you think about those the history of all medicines, those three modalities. and now we have uh, small interfering RNA, as you mentioned, messenger RNA, gene therapy, eventually CRISPR. We have new modalities called bispecific antibodies which target two targets at once. And even small molecules, because you understand biology at a, at a completely new level, small molecules are, are becoming more targeted with less side effects. And so, when you look forward to the next twenty years, um, as we unravel biology, we're just going to have many, many more modalities. Uh, I'm not sure. It's, I'm not sure if we're going to have nanobots, um, but I do think that these technology platforms will be used broadly across all diseases to treat diseases. And I think if we look back twenty, thirty years from now, um, we will have made a substantial inroads into. Um, Disease and, and treating disease, and um, and that that's very exciting and encouraging, and will create a lot of value for the industry.
0: What about um, oncology and cancer? We we've seen a lot of progress, but it turns out cancer is not one disease, but hundreds of diseases. What are we looking at in that space, and, and how important is genomics for pursuing a, a broader cure for cancer?
1: So when you think back to t- ten years ago, cancer was treated with um, with Chemotherapy, which are like poisons, and chemotherapy really has um, resulted in, you know, really controlling cancer or treat helping to treat cancer. But it's been the past 10 years where you've you've used you've had the ability to use genomics and use genetic information to both um, understand how why cancers grow. And like you said, it's you know breast cancer or lung cancer is not just just because it's in the lung doesn't mean it's being driven by the same kinds of mutations. And so just a better understanding of why patients, um, what's driving their cancers has led to a much better um, identification of targets and much better um, identification of drugs. And so when you think about cancer now, you you still have chemotherapy as a backbone. You have immuno-oncology, which helps the immune system. Um, overcome um, the overcome the cancers and you have targeted therapies in terms of um, driver mutations the ability to target those um, driver mutations I think in the future some of the interesting areas are going to be um, antibodies antibody drug conjugates which is more precisely delivering chemo through an antibody so though that, that, those platforms I think will expand going forward you have um, you, you, you know they're the first of um, CAR-Ts, I think those, those could possibly be used much more broadly in other, in other diseases as well. So I think we're on the, we're on the brink of, of really making dramatic changes in oncology. And, and interestingly, when you look at the industry, when you look at the biotechnology industry, I think half the companies are oncology-based, and wow. approximately half of, uh, half of R&D spending in the industry is oncology. So when you think about the combination of really unmet medical needs, And um, being very susceptible or driven by genetic mutation, that's the perfect um, marriage in terms of really making progress.
0: Hmm. Quite quite interesting. So what does this mean for longevity and and future lifespans? Are are we looking at someone being born today with a high probability of reaching 100?
1: Um, I I, I would suspect that lifespans are going to... um, be prolonged going forward. I think you're, you're already seeing that. I think that just recently the death rate from cancer has declined in the last five years. We just talked about the, the number of new technologies. So you're already seeing it in the data. So that would be one. I think that also the, the ability to have gene therapy for these there's 100 monogenic diseases that potentially could be susceptible to a, a technology like gene therapy, that and if you give those to newborns, that could dramatically change um, the the lifespan uh, and, and the quality of the lifespan of individuals with those um, genetic mutations. So that would be another area. Um, and, and I think when you think about the large, um, large parts of the market that really drive mortality, you know, really, really it's... Um, it's cancer and it's also cardiovascular disease. And I think we've made progress in terms of congestive heart failure and in blood pressure. And so again, if we can crack those and you have more people at an earlier stage controlling all of those risk factors, that will also likely lead to longer lives in the future.
0: Quite, quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about Wellington. I think of you guys as an investor in the public spaces, but you have a pretty robust business in alternative assets like private equity and venture capital. I think that's over $30 billion now. Tell us a little bit about what's attractive in that space.
1: So we have uh, an over $30 billion in alternatives, which are both um, long-short funds as well as um, an emerging private equity uh, business. If I, if I think about the private equity business, um, we and, and you mentioned that we were a public company one of the things that we started, you know, right around um, 2014 is 15 is, is launching a late stage crossover fund. So that was our first private fund. It, you know, it came out of the observation that companies were staying private longer and there weren't as many IPOs. And it's a, it was a very natural adjacency to our, um, to our public investing. Um, we've just launched the third of that platform, um, and a few years ago we also launched the first of a biology-based private fund. Um, again, I think the big observation when you step back is that there are more companies staying private longer. There are more companies that are private. Um, when, I, when I think about biotechnology, there are more private companies relative to public companies now than at any part in my career. Um, so it is a very ripe um, area for investing, and it, and it really is very much aligned with how we invest in the public market. Um, it's very adjacent to our public market investing. And I think if you think about Wellington going forward, we'll have more platforms be, be, beyond those first two. That uh, It's an area that we're investing in, in as a firm.
0: So some of the other alternatives that are out there, uh, hedge funds seem to have gotten very crowded over the past 20 years, and and some people have argued the same is true for the venture capital side. A lot of money is chasing only a a finite amount of deals. What does the risk look like in private equity? Is there the possibility that that becomes a a crowded space also?
1: Um, I'll go back to what I talked about in terms of a number of private companies. So again, when we think about our process, and think about Wellington's, very rooted process in terms of both valuation and assessing fundamentals, I think we think there there's plenty of opportunity right now for using our skills as public investors, using the skills we've generated you know skills we've you know skills we've honed over many many years to apply those to the private market and I think the observation about um, maybe the productivity of the world that there are just a number of private you know a larger number of private companies than probably any time in history and um, in, in creating real value for the world and that that's the opportunity
0: huh really interesting let's talk a little bit about sustainable investing uh, Wellington is known for uh, its sustainability and alternatives approaches you guys have a partnership with Woodwell climate Research Center what are some of the physical effects of climate change on capital markets, how how is climate change affecting asset prices?
1: So um, let me take a step back and talk about sustainability, and then talk about our Woodwell Climate Research Partnership, and then how it impacts um, the market. Um, sure. In terms of sustainability, it's it's I would say there it's broad. It's, it's if you think about E S and G, environment, social, and governance. Um, I think governance has been. Um, you know, an important part of our process for the past 25 years. Governance has always been a port- important part of our process. Now we now have more, we now define it more, and we are interacting as a firm more with companies as well as boards in terms of in terms of our oversight of governance of our of our holdings. And I think that will continue. Um, I think in the last number of years, the environmental has really um, become um, quite important in terms of you know, new regulations being put in place in in certain parts of the world. And again, we have this very exciting partnership with Woodwell Climate Research Center, and, and we're working with a few of our clients on this partnership, and we're asking questions such as, how does climate impact asset prices? And there's just been fascinating insights into how water shortage, for example, or heat maps. So we're we're bringing that climate research down to very specific parts of geographies and then connecting them and trying to connect them then to, well, this business is in this geography and is that going to have an impact potentially on municipal bonds, for example, or even on the equities. Um, in the in the in the medium to long term. So that what we're trying to do is take those insights, make sure we're asking the right questions, take those insights, and bring it down to um, very specific mapping of climate risk, and then trying to connect that to actual stocks and credits. Um, and so we are in the in the process of doing that. It's a very exciting partnership, um, and we're also doing with that data. Doing climate reviews of our portfolios. So again, what do our portfolios look like from a climate perspective? If I huh. take a very big step back, I think the next the next stage will be social. You know, again, how how does social interact with the public markets? Um, and I would suspect Barry that we are going um, that sustainability is um, is not a fad. It's here to stay, and it, it is really going to impact um, how the markets evolve in terms of where assets go and to what kind of funds. And so that, it's a very important area of investment for Wellington in terms of, you know, both um, talent, in terms of the talent that comes with ESG um, background, as well as a, a technology investment for us in terms of how we can use our climate, for example, or our governance insights into portfolio construction. Um, I think it's we're early in the process, but eventually it will become part of the dialogue of all stocks um, in a number of years.
0: So in June you take over for Brendan Swords as Wellington's fifth CEO since the firm went private in 1979. You're the first woman to serve in that capacity. You're only one of two female CEOs amongst the largest asset managers. Uh, what does this tell us about governance as an issue? both in corporate America generally, but in the finance sector specifically?
1: So I'm going to answer that in two parts. One would be very Wellington-specific, and then maybe one about a comment about um, corporate, you know, the, the world of um, corporations and what the future might hold. Um, from from a Wellington perspective, um, as you said, I'm going to be the fifth-generation um, CEO of the, of the private partnership era since 1979. I think the most important thing to know is we really value stewardship. We re- really value passing the baton to the next generation, leaving the partnership in a better place. Like my goal is that this partnership in this firm will be thriving 50 years from now. So that's very important in terms of, that's a very Wellington specific stewardship of the firm. Um, if I shift and think about governance, you know, I, you know, I just have an observation. I, you know, I, I think it is a novelty now that as a female becoming a CEO and it's very exciting to see a number of peers in the industry and in the other in other, in other industries becoming CEOs I hopefully hopefully it will be a novel it won't be such a novelty in 10 years and the observation I'm going to make and I and I and I it's an observation based on seeing what's happening in the healthcare industry um, and seeing um, broader data is that I do think as more women, um, in all industries, have more experience running parts of the business. We're, we are going to see more females become CEOs. And, and hopefully, I'm, you know, hopefully the, 10 years from now, there will be a lot more deserving women who have had the opportunity to run businesses being prepared to be CEOs of corporations around the world. You know, when I think about myself being a managing partner that we talked about earlier, that really provided me that experience that experience for me, it really broadened my perspective and I got to know the firm and, and got to know both the clients and the firm and the talent throughout the organization that has helped me um, prepare for, for the next, um, for, the, for, for the upcoming succession from Brendan.
0: That's quite interesting. So over the past, um, let's call a decade or so, certainly since the great financial crisis, we've seen a lot of assets flow towards passive you guys seem to have done pretty well as an active manager. What are you doing to compete more effectively against passive? Is that going to be an ongoing shift, or is this eventually going to reach some form of equilibrium?
1: I strongly believe there's a, a very important place for active management. Um, there's also a very important place for passive I mean, it's our job at Wellington and being an active manager, and that, that is our strategy going forward. To how do we how do we deliver, um, how do we help our clients um, achieve their investment outcomes? And when you think about our clients, and again back to what are we trying to do for clients? We're trying to help them with their their future liabilities, or you know how, how do they fund their pension funds, for example, or how do people retire with more assets so they can live. Um, a fulfilling retirement. That's what we're trying to do, and we believe that if we can deliver investment excellence, that the alpha part of the alpha part of the equation will become even more important going forward. So when you think about where interest rates are, you know what is the outlook for bond returns going forward when interest rates are, um, you know, close to close to zero. Uh, with the equity market you know having a strong run for the past um, twelve years, we think alpha will become an even more important part of the outcomes for our clients. And so again, that's our that's where our we're, that's our number one focus, investment excellence. We can deliver out our clients. We will do well and help them solve their problems and hopefully um, gain more of their trust and gain more of their business over time.
0: Huh. That's interesting. you You mentioned interest rates how much attention do you pay to the macro? Do, is, is what the Federal Reserve is doing um, impact how you adjust your portfolios? Do you think about the state of economy or is all that stuff um, background and you focus on finding companies at the right valuations?
1: So I'll talk about Wellington and then I'll talk about Jean and how she incorporates how I incorporate uh, interest rates and what is happening at the macro level. So yeah, we have half of our business is fixed income, so what happens on the Federal Reserve or the European government is critical to investing um, in fixed income. So it's a very important part of our dialogue at the firm. We have, you know, a, a very strong macro research uh, effort at Wellington to help support um, both, our, both our equity as well as our fixed income and credit, fixed income rates investors as well as our credit investors um, with their investments. So, for the firm, macro investing is very important. Um, I would say for, for, for myself as a healthcare investor, I, I probably would lean more that fundamentals. And we talked about healthcare, what's happening. You know, I would spend most of my time thinking about what's happening with mechanism of action or how cancer is going to be cured. That's the, That's the most important thing to get right. But I found it very important over my career to make sure that you're focused on the macro. And there are probably two macro things. One would be um, what's happening in regulations around the world, regulatory bodies, what's happening in politics. That's a big, important macro um, effort for us in terms of understanding what could influence healthcare fundamentals. And then secondly would be what's happening with interest rates because biopharmaceutical stocks are long dated. You know, you're looking so far into the future in terms of how you think about earning streams. So you know, making sure that that's part of the process in terms of valuations and how much you want to pay for those long dated assets. It's part of the equation that is very necessary to think about when constructing portfolios.
0: I have to ask you a little bit about some of the craziness we've seen in the market uh this past month. We we had GameStop going wild, but we've also seen a little bit of frothy activity in in Bitcoin and Tesla. Uh what are your thoughts on the question of I- is this just pockets of froth or are we looking at a more
1: significant bubble? I guess the observation I would have is that we're, you know, 12 years into a bull market, um, valuations are are higher than they have been, and that's partly due to the low interest rates that we talked about, the Fed policy around the world. So again, getting making sure we know the future direction of interest rates will be very important to, to valuations. Um, I'm not the expert on Tesla or or other areas, but I, I do observe that some parts of my investment universe. Um, that the relationship between growth and valuation is at extremes, and, and some parts of that, not you know, certainly most parts of it, are at very attractive valuation. So, so, I guess as a value investor, that's just a very interesting relationship to me that I'm watching very closely.
0: So, I think of the CEO role as a full time job. I would also imagine running a $51 billion healthcare portfolio as a full time job. You're going to continue managing the Vanguard Healthcare funds. That seems like a lot to do uh, at once. How are you going to juggle the two?
1: Um, a couple of things. One, number one, we are naming. We have named a president. My my managing partner colleague Steve Clark will be president. So he will he will be a partner with me in terms of um, running parts of the organization. So that would be number one. Um, number two, I I really believe in empowering the lead, empowering the leaders, and so we have a management team both in terms of running the business as well as run running our regional offices. Very excited about our leadership team, um, and that's a group of about 20 people. So that would be an observation number two, and then I would say in terms of uh, as observation number three, specifically for healthcare, you know, we have. Um, Expanded the team over the last number of years. The team has uh, matured in their both their research and risk-taking skills. So again, I'm going to be able to leverage that 15-person plus team very significantly um, as I go forward. Um, And then, and then maybe the last, um, just the last thing to share with you, Barry, is that one of the things that I think this is very specific, but one of maybe my super strengths is that I'm very organized. And, again, making sure, and I've spent a lot of time thinking through how I'm going to spend my time going forward. And, and, and again, then it's up to me to execute that plan to make sure that I'm both spending um, significant time on um, managing healthcare assets for the Vanguard shareholders as well as the firm and all the clients of the firm. So I feel very comfortable in the plan going forward and how I'm going to be spending my time. Um, And then just hopefully there are benefits. The benefits of it will be that I'm going to be staying very close to our investors. I'm going to be, you know, we're going to be um, in the morning meeting together. We're going to be in company meetings together. And so staying close to investors hopefully will help me think about how we're going to evolve as investors. How are we going to use more science? How are we going to use more technology to help us evolve? So, again, there's synergies to to both the roles. Um, and I, I think if we hopefully at the end of my term at Wellington as CEO, that will, that will look back and say that was a benefit that you know that that was a benefit both to the firm as well as to um, as well as to Vanguard shareholders.
0: So let me throw a curveball at you: Gene becomes CEO, and then Gene notices um, the manager of the Vanguard Healthcare Fund is uh, falling behind prior performance. How are you going to fire that manager? What What are you going to do, swapping hats that way?
1: So, govern. You know, so we talked about governance and our our producer responsibility at Wellington is another area that we take very seriously. And so, we have a plan in place. So, first of all, it will be Vanguard's responsibility to to decide. You know, how well of a job I'm doing. So, Vanguard will be. The ultimate decision maker there. And then for m- myself, we have, a again, you're, it's very important that we have a fiduciary oversight of me as an investor as well. And so we have a plan in place um, to make sure that happens. Huh.
0: Makes sense. I, I assume that there was um, some mechanism that you guys weren't just spitballing, not, w- not with that much money. Um <laughs> So let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, starting with, uh, what are you streaming these days? Tell us uh, what's keeping you entertained, either Netflix or or podcasts, or what what are you doing for entertainment at home?
1: So one of the, you know one of the things I, I you may or may not know that I have four daughters, and so they're they're in their um, early twenties and late teens, and and so I've been pretty busy over the last. Um, 25, 22-plus years, and so one of, the things I, one of the things I'm streaming now is these series that I never got to watch as I was working full-time and raising a family. And so um, I, I watched West Wing. 2020 was a big West Wing year for me. I'd never watched the series, so that would be one. And then um, this British series, Bridgerton, that was a big series with my daughters over the holidays. We, you know, we binge-watched that um, when they were all home.
0: Yeah, I, that that's funny. It's always interesting to see what people go back to. We never saw Mad Men, and we ended up just yeah. watching that very interesting period piece. Just like just like West Wing. Mm-hmm. Tell us yeah. about your early mentors who helped to shape your career.
1: Well, we already talked about Ed. I would say, Ed, you know, Ed was just so vital. Um, someone that I worked alongside with for twenty years. And, I, and I, again, back to Ed being just giving me the space to grow, um, the space to um, learn mistakes. So he he was very critical. There's another person, Phil Perlmutter, who was one of the managing partners. He was a managing partner. He's since retired. He's recently retired from Wellington. But I would consider him a sponsor. He was always looking out for me. He was a mid-cap growth portfolio manager. So I guess I was helping him, but he was always making sure that um, my career was moving along.
0: Let's talk about uh, what you're reading these days. Tell us about some of your favorite books and, and what you're reading now.
1: So I really like historical fiction um, where you learn about a place or a time through fiction. So I think my favorite book this year was Educated. Um, I am I, on my bedstand right now I have um, um, Barack Obama's book. So that's my next my, my, my next uh, book to read um, in the coming months.
0: Sounds good. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career in either stock research or asset management or, or working in finance?
1: I would give two pieces of advice. One would be uh, always, all, just always be learning. So when I, when I observe talent at Wellington, I get very excited about the talent at Wellington. The ones with this growth mindset that are always learning, um, always um, challenging the status quo of how we do things um, the you know just very exciting to see so again always have that curiosity growth mindset um, always thinking about what what more you, could you be doing in your um, in your in your role so that would be an important piece of advice and then secondly um, just at the asset management industry and you know research um, in, in terms of researching stocks and it's just such a great business. Um, and so I would encourage I would encourage um, people graduating from college to think about the asset management industry. and 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 again, there's a significant um, broader purpose here in terms of serving individuals and beneficiaries all over the world to help them um, lead better better lives long term. And so how do we attract talent to that mission? Um, of how, and again, it's, al- how are we, you know, we're allocating capital to companies um, that are going to make um, the vaccines that save, you know, that really get us back, that save the world and protect the world. I think that is the kind of um, mission that um, that I'd like to make sure that everyone knows. And, and just how, you know, how exciting it is to be, um, to meet companies and to meet, heads of R&D and to meet CEOs and 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 see how they're changing the changing the future of the world that is just intellectually um, I've never I've never when I wake up every um, I never have the Sunday night that I don't want to go to work the next day it's just such a great business to be in
0: quite interesting and our final question what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first getting started
1: um, I think when I when I think about the when I think about the world of investing, I think about it in three phases. Sort of, re, and we talked about being a deep researcher, um, being an investor, and I and I take um, being an investor meaning to can you do recommended? Can you take all your research insights and make recommendations? And then finally, um, being a risk taker and taking taking risk in portfolios. Um, I, I guess if I had to. Um, if I had to know back 30 years, it probably would have been really perfecting each stage and, and, and getting maybe more training. I think that's one of the things we're, gonna, we're really focused on at Wellington is making sure we're training during those pivot points. So that would be a, a one thing. You know, these, are, these are skills you can, be, you can learn and skills that you can get better at with development. And so that's a very important initiative on my part in terms of how do we develop investors along that path. And then I think, you know, personally, just being very flexible, um, pivoting when you have new information, that's, I think, really hard. It's hard to do after after you maybe you might have invested two or three years into a stock and then something changes. That ability to be flexible and pivot, I think, is critical to investment success. And, you know, the earlier you can learn that, the better.
0: Terrific stuff. Thanks, Gene, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Jean Hines. She manages the $51 billion Vanguard healthcare fund and is the incoming CEO at Wellington Management, which runs over a trillion dollars in client assets. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 387 prior such conversations we've had over the past seven years. You can find them at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put together these conversations each and every week. Reggie Brazil is our audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.